Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Utah may not be known as a destination for refugees, but the Utah Refugee Coalition and Refugee Services Office estimated in 2013 that at least 45,000 refugees have resettled in Utah since 1988. A joint initiative of Utah State University and the American Folklife Center of the Library of Congress will conduct research beginning next week in a field project called Voices, Refugees in Cache Valley. It's designed to collect the stories and life experiences of refugees. The project will seek voices from the Karen, Burmese, Eritrean, and other refugee communities in Utah. We're going to talk about that project and hear stories of refugees who have settled in Utah today on the program. We welcome in uh, Chimo, who is a uh, refugee from the Karen community and uh, living in, here in uh, Cache Valley. Yeah. Welcome to the program. Thank you. So you're 20 years old. Mm-hmm. Uh, USU student. That's correct. Point. Studying computer science. All right, we're good. We'll hear your story as we as we go along. Uh, we welcome in uh, the studio as well, Randy Williams, who's with the USU Five Folklore Archives, curator at uh, Utah State University. Thank you. Thanks, Tom. On the on the line, we have uh, Lisa Gabbard, associate professor of English, director of the folklore program at USU. Uh, welcome to the program. Thank you. And uh, Gua Shankar, a Folklife Specialist, American Folklife Center, Library of Congress, uh, joins us by phone. Thanks for joining us. Thank you very much for having us on. Uh, so I want to play this uh, piece of tape here to, to begin the program. Uh, as I was thinking about this, uh, you know, we're, we hear reports and very distressing reports. In fact, uh, this morning, uh, Randy was pointing out to me just on the morning edition here on NPR, we had two reports of uh, refugee stories uh, and we're hearing about the deplorable conditions in uh, the, the, these for the refugees of the Syrian community and uh, the people getting on the boats and trying to flee Africa. The story goes on and on, but I, I don't know if we have uh, the facts in front of us. And so uh, found this uh, at refugee.org, uh, international ref, uh, rescue.org. Um, but it cracks me here. Rescue.org, and this is the International Rescue Committee. And uh, they're going out on the street and asking people about refugees. Let's hear this. So the question is, how many refugees do you think there are in the world? In the world? If you want a number, I want to say this. I don't know how many refugees, but I can guess. 2,000 people? I don't know. Somewhere in the thousands? or? I would say a couple hundred thousand. 500,000. I'd say a million. Six millions? Just my best guess. What do you think? What if I told you there were over 16 million refugees? Wow, that's a lot. Oh, my God. I mean, I don't, I don't really think about it every day. Uh, to be honest, it's embarrassing. Pretty terrible. It's an immense amount of people. So where, where do all those people live? That's a key question, is where do all those people live? Um, so, and 16 million was the number in the video, but on the website, uh, rescue.org, they say right now there are 51.2 mil- million forcibly displaced people in the world. So maybe it has to do with, with definitions. 51 million people, that's, that's, that's amazing. So Chimo, where do, <laughs> where do refugees live? You lived, or where did you live? For- well, I lived in a refugee camp in Thailand. Um, uh, so uh, for for all your life, basically, yeah, until for you came all my to the life, US. ever since I was born, yeah, yeah. Were you born in Burma? 
Yeah, I was born in part of Burma, and then we, well, me and my parents, we had to flee to right to the refugee camp. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, b- but growing up, most of your growing up years were in this refugee camp in, Correct. in yeah. Thailand. And some of your siblings were, I think, born in Yeah, in they were born in, yeah, in that yeah. camp, yeah. Yeah. Why did your parents flee Burma? Why did they have well, to get out? Well, there was a, a civil war, I would say, like a conflict between Burmese army and a Korean army, and we just couldn't live there anymore you know they, they were well the B- Burmese army they were burning houses I mean they, they were killing people and everything so we just had to escape from that mm-hmm. yeah uh, amazing um, you you have I think your grandparents are still in mm-hmm. Burma mm-hmm. yeah so they, they, were, they were able to stay or, or go yeah, back they were able to stay and they well they had they had have they have a property there so they would like to keep their property and stay there. Okay. They just wouldn't want to go anywhere else. Right. And the Karen community, it's a minority community mm-hmm. in in, uh, in Burma, Burma. And, and I think persecuted by the by the government. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so we'll hear more of, of Chimo's story as, as we go along. Uh, I want to uh, bring in uh, Gua Shankar. Am I pronouncing your name correctly? That's very good. Thank you. Oh, uh, close anyway. Okay. <laughs> no, it's fine. <laughs> right. So tell me about the project there that initiated the the, the American Folklife Center. Well, what the American Folklife Center will do in this particular project, as we do in many other projects, is to lend support, assistance, and uh, basically some uh, guidance to our colleagues uh, in local areas, as in uh, Logan and at Utah State University, chiefly my friends. Uh, Randy Williams and Lisa Gabbard. Um, the American Folklife Center, stepping back a bit, has produced or co-produced field schools, uh, which are essentially providing documentary uh, training uh, in various sorts of fieldwork methods to professionals and would-be professionals of all kinds. In this particular case, we're working with a uh, student population, uh, principally, if not uh, mostly all, from uh, Utah State University. Uh, To that extent, what we'll do is we will prepare the students to go out and under the direction of, uh, you know, Lisa Gabbard and Randy Williams, they will undertake field work with specific uh, refugee populations in uh, the Cache Valley. Um, So there's four weeks, uh, three weeks of intense training, uh, you know, provided in classroom. Uh, They've been prepared very well by the faculty at uh, Utah State University. Um, and we come in uh, from the Library of Congress and the American Folklife Center specifically, which is one of the divisions of the library, to provide uh, training in methodologies, and I will say this inelegantly, from soup to nuts, that is to say from the process of collecting, documenting uh, people's life experiences uh, via various technologies, whether it's uh, uh, you know, uh, digital cameras or digital audio recorders, uh, to you know, preparing them to go out and do interviews with community members, and then towards the uh, end of it all, uh, they, the students will prepare a community-wide uh, sort of uh, uh, event where they will present their findings. That at least is the plan, and that's how we've operated uh, in this uh, particular realm for about 15 years in different parts of the country and even in other parts of the world. And why, why refugees? Why, 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 uh, why was this population well, chosen? The refugee uh, component is uh, entirely the uh, 
brainchild or the kind of research focus of our colleagues uh, at Utah State University. Mm, okay. um, we're, uh, to a certain extent, agnostic about the fieldwork topics which colleagues in the field pr uh, you know, produce or provide, um, and it's all predicated on what is it that local researchers at the university or other levels are interested in uh, discovering and having their students discover in that particular realm. So, for instance, many years ago we did a, a project that, uh, with Indiana at Univers the University of Indiana in Bloomington, and our colleagues there wanted to t uh, talk about deaf culture uh, in and around uh, the uh, campus at Bloomington. A few years ago, we were actually in Utah, uh, at, in Provo, and one of the things that was uh, on uh, the minds of our colleagues there at uh, Brigham Young University was to look at the changing nature of agriculture and uh, landscape and environmental uses in uh, uh, you know, the, the Provo. Um, so we are guided to a certain, uh, to a large extent, by the folks on the ground, uh, and it's it's a what what is of moment and what is of concern to our colleagues in the field, uh, wherever they may be. But by the way, parenthetic, I want to put in a plug for uh, StoryCorps, which was you know the oh, NPR <laughs> station here, and the the recordings end up at the uh, I think the American Folklife Center, right? They do. We do our, We are the repository for those uh, interviews collected by uh, people everywhere. Uh, many of them, uh, perhaps from uh, Utah as well. And uh, this summer, uh, UPR and StoryCorps will be in Vernal collecting stories. So, another plug. Okay. I'll stop my shameless right. plugging and, and turn to Randy Williams. <laughs> um, so, why? Let me point that question to you. Why? Why refugees? You want to do this project? Why? Why about refugees? Great question. Well, for about four years, the library, Utah State University's library and special collections especially, we've had um, our eye on trying to document the local refugee community. We've worked with Nelda Alt, and also we have this last year and a half, I've been working with the um, CASH, actually it's a Utah refugee assessment project that's um, out of workforce services with some great colleagues here on campus, Steve Daniels and Lauren Belton, Jess Lucero and others, um, training students and going out in the field and trying to assess the needs of Utah's refugees. Um, the stories are incredible and we want to document them. And that's one of my jobs at the university is to make sure the voices of all people make their way to be deposited and recorded and made available so that people understand about who lives here in Northern Utah right now as well as in the past. Let me turn to uh, Lisa Gabbert. What's what's the interest on the from the point of view of the English department and and the folklore program at USU? Well, um, we teach. A, a, I've been teaching a, a fieldwork course uh, off and on. It's part of my regular teaching rotation. Uh, we offer a, a semester long fieldwork course once a year for the graduate students in the folklore program, and this is kind of another method of delivering that fieldwork course. Um, it's a, a really unique opportunity for the students to uh, get to do, you know, a very intensive kind of fieldwork and um, develop their skills, you know, with really competent, um, highly skilled professionals um, beyond the classroom. So um, I'm very excited for the students. Hmm. So it starts uh, next week. Yes, go ahead. If I could step in for just a second, I mean, I, I think one of the questions that I think Randy touched upon briefly is uh, when he asked the why question to folklorists, um, basically it's part of our professional training, our disciplinary backgrounds and our scholarly and personal inclinations um, to talk about cultural history sort of writ large, but then look at this in terms of the local phenomenon and how the, the global events are uh, playing out in our backyards, if you will. 
uh, and this is part, I think, also of our interest uh, as uh, individuals and professionals in issues of social justice, uh, in issues of cultural equity, uh, in matters of um, you know diaspora and refugees and uh, displacement and the uh, making of new traditions in this country. Um, and if we're interested in anything as cultural historians, it's how does how do cultural processes change across time and space? Uh, and what are the kind of ramifications for you know American society and uh, individual communities? And how does it all work together, or how doesn't it work together? Uh, and these are all, as I've said, in the questions which have been sort of imprinted, if you will, on on us as uh, folklorists and eth- uh, ethnographers and uh, photographers and uh, people who have come up in a discipline uh, disciplinary process, which uh, is very keenly. Uh, you know, attentive to those sorts of uh, uh, very you know, gut bucket issues, which uh, you know, impinge on our world. And the point about 16 million refugees or 55 million refugees is of consequence for all of us. But uh, I would say, uh, from a research perspective, it's even more even more the case that we want to uh, impress upon our students the importance of putting their uh, their sort of professional training into practice and for a, a, in a broader service and broader goals. Randy, we were talking before we went out the air. This is a an issue of a global concern, global interest, and uh, of course, we're taking a, a snapshot of, of the situation in a you know local area from that global uh, situation and problem. And uh, you know, for example, just a couple of stories this morning on, on Morning Edition. There's a, there's a story of a young man from Eritrea. That's right. Who uh, ended up in Israel and then left Israel, and, and unfortunately, and now we have, uh, I guess, video proof that he's been killed by a, an affiliate of ISIS. That's right. And we have some, uh, maybe 50 individuals here from Eritrea and also some individuals here, refugees um, in Cache Valley from Ethiopia. And so those stories that we hear um, kind of on the bigger scene hit home because there are folks that we know here, you know, they, that that's part of the life experience that they have had. And so we want to um, work with our students during the field school to see um, what's happening big and small. And each student will have an opportunity to um, do some research on a specific refugee community, but also just digging in. And I think Guha mentioned um, social justice. Mm. And some of the things that we'll hopefully work through these next few weeks with our students and with ourselves and with the refugee community is just, you know, we are all in this together in a lot of ways. And understanding, uh, it makes a lot of sense when we can visit with each other and learn from each other. And um, just yesterday, I had some students from Mount Crest High School in the, in the library, and we were doing a tour and talking about their collections of folklore, what they'll be working on. And I always say to students, well, if you want to find out about somebody you know, who would be the best person to find that out from? And, of course, they say, well, the person that does that, the person that sings that or eats that food. And I think that's the key to this. Um, we can hear stories on the radio, but, you know, there might be somebody in your community that you could learn a little bit more about that story and how it impacted them and their family. Mm-hmm. Let's take a break. When we come back, we'll hear uh, more on uh, this project. Uh, it's a joint initiative of Utah State University and American Life, Folk Life Center of the Library of Congress. They'll be conducting research beginning next week for a field project called Voices, Refugees in Cache Valley. So we're talking about global issues and uh, local issues as well. We have with us in studio uh, Chimo, who is uh, from the uh, Karen community. 
Uh, he's a refugee, uh, came uh, resettled in uh, Cache Valley with his uh, family. He's now a USU student in uh, computer science. Uh, we have with us as well Randy Williams from the USU uh, Five Folklore uh, Collections Archives at USU, Lisa Gabbard, Associate Professor of English, Director of the Folklore Program at USU, and uh, Gua Shankar, Folklife Specialist with the American Folklife Center at Library of Congress. More following the break. Hi, it's Lynn Rosetto-Casper. This week, we take a look at mindfulness in the kitchen with news anchor Dan Harris. He's author of 10% Happier. He started out skeptical, but ended up seeing tangible differences in his life. Well, be sure to join us. That's this week on The Splendid Table from APM. Tuesday morning at 10 on Utah Public Radio. Congratulations to Emily Hamilton, senior of Mountain Crest High School, for being awarded the Foot Locker Scholarship. The $20,000 scholarship is awarded through the company's Scholar-Athlete Program, which honors students who demonstrate great academic excellence and show their devotion to their sport of choice as well as the communities they live in. UPR congratulates Emily Hamilton for being awarded the National Foot Locker Scholarship. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Four Paws Rescue and the Cash Humane Society, hosting the 2015 Doggy Olympics, Saturday, May 9th, 1 p.m. to 4.30 p.m. at the Cash County Fairgrounds. Events include dog frisbee, agility, and the doggy dress-up runway. Details at cashvalleydoggyolympics.weebly.com or call 970-217-3404. Thanks for joining us for Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're talking about refugees, and Utah may not be known, may not be famous for a destination for refugees, but I think uh, all of the states in the Union uh, have uh, refugees who are, who are settled there. Uh, Cache Valley may not be known, although speak, I think it's, uh, the word is getting out that we have uh, refugee, uh, refugee families here in Cache Valley, and uh, of course in Salt Lake area and, and lots of places in Utah. And uh, there's a joint initiative of USU and the American Folklife Center of the Library of Congress starting next week conducting research, a field project called Voices, Refugees of Cache Valley. It's collecting the stories and life experiences of refugees from uh, Karen, Burmese, uh, Eritrean, and other refugee communities in Utah. And we're going to talk about this project and uh, hear some stories. We have with us uh, in studio Chimo, who is uh, from the Karen community. refugee community here in uh, Cache Valley, is a USU student in computer science. Uh, Randy Williams with USU Five Five Folklore Archives is with us. Lisa Gabbert, Associate Professor of English, Director of the Folklore Program, and Gua Shankar, Folklife Specialist with the American Folklife Center. I want to turn back to uh, Chimo. So you essentially grew up in this refugee camp in uh, in Thailand. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the current community was, was forced out by the government, many in your community. Tell me about life in the in the camp. What was life like in that refugee camp? Well, um, like I said earlier, we, they, the, I don't know who, who was the sponsor, or who, who it was that giving us food, like they provided us food, shelter, you know, they giving us um, blankets and stuff where, where we can be safe and feel like home. But at the same time, since we're refugees, we don't feel at home because it's is in our country and it's a refugee camp. And we, we were allowed to stay in a camp and we, we were not allowed to go outside of the camp or, mm-hmm. or else, you know, something would happen to, mm-hmm. to us. 
What uh, uh, is their current language? Were you speaking Burmese? What? Uh... Oh yeah, uh, it, it's mainly Korean, mm-hmm. and they ha- we have school where we can go to and learn. You know, learn to spell the language itself. But and but then we we were not allowed to to learn Thai language. So. So you were speaking Karen mm-hmm. and, and learning that. You went to school. Mm-hmm. Did people work? They, they were allowed to leave the camp to work. Yeah, they do. They they they. Well, <laughs> people had to sneak out to work. It's like a day to day job where you get paid each day you work, and yeah. That, that's about it. And it sounds like some people are in camps for a long, long time. You you essentially grew up in that camp. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, some people, like, some people manage to open a store maybe, you know, like they can sell groceries and stuff. And, th- and that's another way of supporting their family. Mm. This is like a city, right? It's, it's a pretty big camp. It is a pretty big camp. And they they... They've divided us into a, a section. Like a, I think there were seventeen sections within mm-hmm. that camp. Yeah. Yeah. So you'd have you have friends. I guess it'd be a quote unquote normal life, except here yeah. in a, you yeah. essentially have to stay in this camp. Correct. When did you? Well, I guess there's a process. You have to apply as a refugee to to be settled in a country. I guess you you did that process. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I was not really. You know the expert on that, but my parents were the one doing all of the process. I think we had to, you know, fill out a like application. And but the main key is that we had to live in a camp at least five years to to be like a, a permanent resident. They call it that way. And yeah, and then that way we would apply that application to to let's say United States, and they would accept us, and they will. Yeah, and then they come. They, they they came and pick us up and do a lot of exams, like health checkup and stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's about it. When did you learn you would be coming to the United States? Um, when I was a teenager, like thirteen years old. Yeah, that's when I. Mm-hmm. That's when I know that we're going to the United States and we're gonna learn. Uh, we we will have to learn new language. Right. And, right. So I imagine you're excited. You get to leave the camp. I don't know what you knew about the United States. You were, were you happy to? Yeah, I was. Coming? I wasn't sad. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I know for sure that the life is going to be better in the United States. You know, we have plenty of food and better living standard up here. Okay. So when you hear you're coming to the United States, you might think, you know, I don't know how much you knew about the U.S., but you might be thinking New York or Chicago or Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then you learn you're coming to Logan, Utah. What What did you think then? Well, okay. Um, well, when I was in a refugee camp, I I did heard of New York or California, you know, big states like that. I have never heard of Utah before. And when on, on my application it said UT, and I thought it was Utica, you know, which is in New York. Oh, right. But in in this case, it isn't. It's a Utah. Right. So. <laughs> what did you think when you first came to Cache Valley? Oh, first time I I didn't like it. You know, it was cold, and I didn't like the food. And people keep feed, feeding us with chicken and breads, and they're, they're not really the type of food I like, you know. Because right. I used to grow up with rice, and yeah, rice. Yeah. yeah, and the language. You you spoke Karen, and you didn't speak English. 
Yeah, right. I do not speak English, and I've been here for seven years, and I'm still learning. Yeah, well, it's yeah. it's pretty good, um, so, but so that's a whole process: learning learning the language, and learning the culture, right? You yep. say, which includes the food and and everything. Mm-hmm. What about your uh, your parents? Did they? I guess they must have had the same some of the same feelings. Have, have they adjusted as well? Yeah, they they have. I I believe they have. Yeah. And and other members of the Karen community. I think there are others in Cache Valley. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, they. I, I think they also have adjusted to the atmosphere and the weather and stuff. But I don't think they, they are. You know, I don't think they are in the state where they they like the American foods yet. You know, mm-hmm. they are still. Um, they still go back to Salt Lake to buy um, Asian foods. I would say, yeah. Right. Okay. How do you think of yourself? Think of yourself as Karen, as Burmese, as American. What do you? How do you think of yourself? That's a good question. Um, I, I am strongly. I would say like hundred percent Karen because I, I, I know I did not grow up in Burma, but I'm hundred percent Karen, mm. and I like to be represented that way because, like I said earlier, Burmese soldiers were you know they were killing people and stuff. So I just. Yeah, you know, I just don't want to be known as Burmese, but instead yeah. I'm a Karen. Yeah. Right. And are you um, are you uh, going to become a U.S. citizen, or are you a U.S. citizen? Uh, yes, are you I am pathway? already. Yeah. yeah. Okay. I took a citizen exam like last month, and right. Oh, last citizen. month. Okay. Citizen. All right. Yeah. The, did the ceremony and everything. Yep. <laughs> oh well, congratulations. Thanks. All right, and computer science mm-hmm. is what you're studying, and I guess you want to be a computer scientist. Take that working computers and mm-hmm. yeah, I like computers, so why not? What, what do you think? You'll stay in Utah or move somewhere else? Or I I don't know that yet. I don't have any plan for that yet. Yeah, okay. But for now, I'm staying in Utah. Yeah. All right. That's Chimo. He's he's uh, in the uh, Karen community here here in uh, in Cache Valley in in Utah. I want to turn next to Lisa Gabbert, associate professor of English. Uh, so this 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 field work. Um, what do you what do you hope the uh, your students will will be getting out of this? They'll meet people like Chimo. What what do you hope they they get out of this? Oh, that's a great question. Um, there's a number of things I'm hoping they get out of this. Um, number one, as I mentioned earlier, do, doing a field school like this is really different than um, taking the the, the subject in, over the course of a, a semester. Uh, this is much more hands on. Uh, it's much more collaborative, and uh, for one thing, they're going to be working in teams, uh, which is not something, at least when I teach the fieldwork class, they don't, you know, I give them an, a series of assignments that they kind of uh, do on their own, but here they're going to be working in teams of three, and they will uh, rotate positions and, you know, have to learn to work um, with their teammates, and um, obviously then they're going to set up their interviews and uh, go into, in some occasions, uh, people's houses or maybe meet them in, in public areas. They're going to have to learn to set up the interviews with, um, you know, people that they'll be quite unfamiliar with. Whereas uh, in the fieldwork class, you know, during the course of the semester, oftentimes, you know, they, they will certainly do interviews and, and um, similar kinds of activities, but oftentimes it's with family members or in a much more sort of comfortable uh, environment for, for people doing introductory field work. So uh, they'll also get really, I think, really high quality uh, technical instruction, you know, with Guha and, and Randy, because 
they do field working um, in professional context, you know, for the purposes of archiving and, and public programming. And it's just a, a, a different level, I think, in terms of the, um, the, the technical information that they're going to be getting. And um, I would think the last thing that they're going to be getting out of it is a really good sense, I think, of, of camaraderie and a sense of, you know, what it means to be a, a professional uh, field worker, a professional ethnographer, as Guha was mentioning. I was I was thinking, uh, Lisa Gabbard, about you know some of your some of your work, uh, and I wonder how you how you would connect this up. Uh, for example, you know, a Rocky Mountain Winter Carnival, uh, you know, celebrations and such. Uh, some of your other work. How, how would you? Oh, could... that's a good that's a good question. Yeah, I mean, refugees aren't my my area of research. The the, the idea for refugees really came out of the work Randy was doing in the in the archive. Uh, I did uh, bring to Logan in 2007, there was a, a national uh, traveling exhibit uh, that was put together by a group of folklorists called Weavings of War, Fabrics of Memory. And that was an exhibit of uh, quilts done by, or, or fabric art really, done by uh, both refugees and um, people who uh, who had been sort of displaced in, in some kind of way. So we had, for example... Uh, quilts uh, and fabric art coming out of Afghanistan, out of um, the Hmong community, which uh, a lot of the, their uh, work was actually made in the probably uh, in some of those uh, refugee camps in Thailand, and that was here for that hung in the um, the I think it was the Thatcher Young Museum for uh, about six weeks, and then we did work with um, workforce services who brought up a panel of refugees to to speak about refugee issues. Uh, there, mm. um, but it doesn't, it, you know, doesn't connect to to published work uh, mm. directly. Right. Yeah, I was just thinking about the strain of you know the the folklore studies. Uh, it's it's an interest in people and their and their customs and their ways. I guess it's uh, exactly exactly. And as Randy to... mentioned earlier, you know, this is a, a great opportunity to uh, you know collect the stories of people who are really new to the community. Um, you know, there's. Uh, a long history of collecting, I think, oral histories and stories from people who have uh, various groups who have, who have been here a while. But the idea of, uh, you know, trying to collect some of these narratives from people who have, you know, in some cases been in the country less than a year, you know, is a pretty uh, interesting prospect, I think. I want to turn back to Chimo here before we go on with our panel. I was, I was thinking about, you know, the things we keep. We, you know, we call them artifacts, but you know, quilts and or whatever it might be. Were your parents able? To, were you able to bring anything like that? Keep that through the refugee camp and bring that to the U.S. Uh, I'm thinking about your probably your mother especially who who would want some things around her. Perhaps what uh, what kinds of things was she able to to um, keep this important to her? That that will I think my mom brought a family picture. I mean that yeah, that's the only thing we we were able oh, to bring here. Uh-huh. Yeah. Just a family picture, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. Moving around so much, it's uh, it's hard to hard to keep those things. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I also had uh, wondered as we go along here, uh, Chimo. Um, the, we talk about immigrants. We talk about uh, illegal immigration. We talk about refugees, and I think in some people's minds, all those are maybe mixed up together. I wonder if you've ever had to have that conversation with people that someone says, "Oh, you're a." Has anybody called you an illegal immigrant or or had that discussion with you? No, no, mm-hmm. I I've never been called illegal immigrants. Mm-hmm. 
So, well, I came here legally. So yeah, yeah, exactly. I, um, no. Right. Okay. Well, that's that, that's good. <laughs> um, and do you feel like I don't know? You're you're sort of between cultures, aren't you? You're in the you're you consider yourself Karen. That's what you most consider yourself. Mm -hmm. You said. Uh, so that's cultural cultural identity. Mm -hmm. What about in you know with the U.S.? You've you've grown up since you were thirteen in the in the U.S. You're sort of between two cultures. What? Uh, how does that make you feel? Where do, where do you do you fit in somewhere? Do you fit both places? Um, uh, no, I, I don't think so. I, I I still think I'm like I said a Korean, and I'm just I've been doing Korean culture stuff, and I haven't really done any American thing like. For example, when I was in high school, I have never been to a prom, so okay. <laughs> I'm just not fit into mm -hmm. that category. Yeah, you know. So you think of yourself definitely as as Korean. Yeah. <laughs> Do you think that will continue as you? Yeah. As you grow yeah. older, that's that's how you'll think of yourself. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Uh, let me turn back to Randy Williams. Um, so I wonder how, you know, we uh, how we connect this to the larger. The larger picture, I guess you the, the old the old phrase, um, think globally, act locally. And there there is a somewhat new organization in in Cache Valley. That's right. Dealing with refugees, for for one example. That's right. Um, Cache Refugee Immigrant Connection um, is about two years old. Um, Nelda Ald, as I mentioned before, and others, um, Laurie Belton, and some great folks, and folks from the refugee communities here in Cache Valley. And that organization, um, their mission is to promote integration, economic self-sufficiency, and positive connections among refugees, immigrants, and the wider community through improved access to services and education. And I think that's, um, you know, part of what our students will have an opportunity to participate, not necessarily with Crick, but it seems like everybody who does work in these kinds of areas does end up having a change of their view of the world in a big way, you know, globally, but it starts something much more intimate, you know, interacting. And I think, you know, that's for all of us. When we have an opinion about something, but then we sit next to someone on a bus and start visiting with them about their life experience or we share our life experience, we are changed in um, this opportunity for all of us to gather information back and forth. Um, it's not just the, the researchers going into someone's home that's going to gather something. Obviously, the families that are interacting with them um, take something away as well. And so I think as Lisa talked about the collaborative nature of the students, well, there'll be a collaborative reciprocity going on with the folks that they work with and interview. And that's a big part of the the field work that folklorists mm -hmm. do. In addition to uh, to Karen communities, uh, you'll be going into talking to some uh, Burmese Muslims and uh, Eritreans. That's right. And I'm really excited, too. Um, with Chimo, we've worked, um, I, I don't know if we've made this known, but Chimo works in special collections with me. Um, oh, okay, great. Yeah, so Chimo's been working since January um, as a student worker in the library, and so that's very exciting. But also working on this project, the um, the field of school working with us to identify folks to be interviewed and he has helped us identify other people to come into the class and help to um, present and so we are going to we've invited Harvey Barr who is a young woman from the Burmese Muslim community she'll be joining us as well as well as Burhani Babasi who is Eritrean and he will be visiting the students and, and visiting and presenting with them um, and so in the classroom we're going to have 
opportunities for this exchange to, to happen as well. Mm. And that's, that's exciting because one of the things I feel really strongly about is when you do field work, you, you're a partner and you need to partner from the very beginning from how you form your questions and how you do things. And, and Chimo's been an amazing um, partner for me and for Lisa and for Guha. And I have to say, we also have another um, member of our team, Maggie Cruzy, from the Library of Congress, who's a fantastic. And she will not only, when she's here, interact with the students, but also with the librarians at uh, Utah State and, and work with us. So we, as a profession in the library, will also be, be getting some um, instruction from Library of Congress. If you just joined us, I want to uh, reset the scene. We're talking about a project to be happening next week, or beginning next week, joint initiative from Utah State University and American Folklife Center of Library of Congress. Uh, it's called Voices, Refugees of Cache Valley, and it's collecting the stories and life experiences of refugees, uh, seeking voices from Karen, Burmese, and Eritrean and other refugee communities uh, in Utah. Uh, you can join us here at 1-800-826-1495. Our email is upraxcess at gmail.com, and you can join us on Twitter at Utah Public Radio. Let me turn back to uh, Gua Shankar. Um, it's... All of this has a unifying theme, not only this project, but all the all of the projects you do at the Folklife Center. That's story, right? It's the, it's the power of story. Correct. Uh, yeah, and, and stories carry um, meaning. They carry weight. They carry uh, the load of you know, cultural and community history. And, um, you know, it's, uh, I think, really exciting that uh, our colleagues at Utah State are, uh, you know, embarking upon this project. It certainly, as I said, uh, one of the more interesting uh, engagements for the American Folklife Center over the duration of the field school, but uh, all the more so with regard to uh, the collections that we're generating. So um, we're looking forward to uh, seeing how this all plays out. Um, it expands the uh, field for us in terms of the collections we will be bringing in in the future, uh, because obviously these uh, the young people who are part and parcel of this uh, program um, are going to be the collectors and our colleagues in the future. So. We're, you know, uh, strategically looking to see what what sort of material is going to be collected out there. So tell me, again, you, you told me a couple of other projects. Uh, I'd, I'd like to get a flavor of uh, what else sure. is out there. What what other projects uh, have you worked on? Oh, uh, well, there's several. Um, but, you know, I mean, if we're keeping it broadly within the realm of, uh, you know, folklore collecting, oral history, and cultural documentation, um, our historical materials, uh, you know, for instance, go all the way back to 1896 when Jesse Walter Fuchs's recordings of Passamaquoddy Indians were made on wax cylinder recordings. We maintain those. We uh, have, a, you know, working on uh, yet again, uh, you know, trying to extract the sound from it uh, using cutting-edge uh, uh, technologies. We have um, projects which are coming in, uh, as you said, uh, and collections which are coming in. Uh, via things like StoryCorps, uh, we have an occupational collecting project that uh, we work in partnership with uh, universities and researchers um, across uh, the country to uh, collect those stories. Uh, I'm the project director for a, a joint uh, initiative with the Smithsonian's National Museum of African American History and Culture to collect the reminiscences of uh, people who are active uh, in the uh, civil rights era of the 1950s, 60s, 70s on down. Um, and those are all uh, born digital collections of, uh, you know, testimonials and memories um, that uh, we now have on the uh, library's website uh, and is available for you know, national and international audiences. Hmm. 
Uh, it, it, can, I, can I interrupt? Yes, really yes, to yes, we go ahead. We actually sent a, a student last year to work on that very uh, collection that Guha is talking about, Naomi Barnes, who was an hmm. intern with the Library of yep. Congress and worked on the, uh, the Civil Rights Project oh, excellent. collection. And she was great, and thank you very much for doing that, Lisa. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to ask you, Lisa uh, Gabbert, um, to stereotype, but in a good way. Um, <laughs> it's you know when we separate out into majors and, and fields of study, we we you know we self-select. Uh, I wonder what it is about the person that goes into, and I guess you can include yourself. Randy can include herself. Uh, Guha as well goes into the this field of study, folk life, folklore. folklore. Yeah. Oh, that's a great question. Um, well, you know, folklore historically, in, in terms of academic disciplines, is really situated right in between literature and anthropology. Uh, and in fact, um, you know, some of the, the founding, quote unquote, founding fathers of uh, folklore studies have come from, um, you know, both of those, both of those disciplines. And the way I like to characterize it is that we are uh, we tend to be a little bit more uh, maybe people oriented than the the folks in the literature department, and we're a little <laughs> bit more literary than the than the anthropologists. Mm. Um, and oftentimes, you know, the reason why I'm in an English department is that folklore programs often are in, uh, under the aegis of uh, an English department. Um, sometimes they're in they're in anthropology as well, although I think probably not quite as as uh, as frequently, but I always, uh, th th there's a fun debate in folklore, you know, it's sort of how do you tell the difference between a, an anthropologist and a folklorist, and, and people go back and forth on that, and the answer I've come up with is that if you can do uh, kinship systems, you're an anthropologist, and if you organize the world by genres, you're, you're a folklorist. <laughs> Very good. Very good. All right. Uh, we're talking with uh, Lisa Gabbard, Associate Professor of English. Uh, we have with us uh, Chimo, who is from the Karen Refugee Community in Cache Valley, uh, Gua Shankar, uh, Folk Life uh, Specialist with American Folk Life Center at the Library of Congress, and Randy Williams with the USU uh, Five Folklore Archives. We just have uh, about five minutes left uh, in the program. I want to turn back to, uh, to Chimo. What, um, how old are your brothers? Um, eight. 12 and 16. Okay. And they were born in this in the refugee camp. Yeah. And uh, especially with the regard to the eight-year-old, he's lived most of his life then in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Um, are there differences then in how, I mean, from you to your eight-year-old brother, how, <laughs> oh, uh, yeah, how, how how you see the U.S. or how you're living here or what uh, how you see yourself? Mm-hmm. Well, um, my little brother and well, all my three other brothers, they are more adjust to the American food. Mm -hmm. They they've they always, you know, eat hamburgers and pizza every day okay. <laughs> for dinner or lunch. Yeah. Um but me I stay with rice and yeah. So yeah. that's one of the thing that's different, you know. Yeah. That's an interesting difference. So your your rice and uh, your little brother's hamburger. That's <laughs> yeah. so he 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 took to the to the food. Food's very important. You you mentioned that a couple of times. And I could see why that that's a that's a big cultural marker. That's that's what you're comfortable with. Yeah. Right. So you're comfortable with rice. <laughs> with the rice, yeah. Which what you're used to. Yeah. Now you've worked. I think you work as uh, uh, interpreter, translator for. Yeah. You know, I mean, not formally, but you interpret for other members of the Karen community. Yeah. Sometimes. Um, and so you interact with other members of the community. What, uh, what, what sorts of things do you help them through? Oh, all sorts of things. Um, 
example, well, examples would be like going to the hospital, you know, making, translating for them and are doing a job interview, but mostly at JBS in Hiram. Mm -hmm. Right. And maybe go buy a new car and they don't know what, you know, which brand to get or what to do, what to sign. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Things like that. Brother, I wonder wonder if I could get a sample of uh, the Karen language. Could you just, you know, tell me, give me a sentence or two in, in Karen. Um, okay, you all are Utah Radio Mall. I just said I'm at Utah Radio Station right now. Okay, all yeah. right, excellent. Okay. Uh, tell me a little bit about the current culture. It's kind of hard to describe a whole culture, but maybe um, anything that comes to mind. Okay, um, I want well, so current community, you know, um, current population is, well, most current people live in Salt Lake right now, and every year we have this um, Korean New Year, which where we celebrate our New Year, and that's the day where we wear our own clothes. You know, our own, well, our own clothes. Yeah, and we show up to the New Year, and we have this dance. It's called Don't Dance. It's like a, a cultural dance, and we have to do it. We, it's a must do, like every single year. Mm. Yeah. Um, so, what would the what would the Korean traditional clothing look like? Well, it. Um, it has strings on the side and in the middle, and it's. <laughs> I don't even know how to describe okay, it well. Yeah, I don't know if you could describe the dance. Oh no, it's kind of hard. <laughs> kind of hard. You'd have to do it. Mm-hmm. If we had more space, I'd have you do it. But uh, but uh, I'd put you on the spot. But luckily, what we don't have the space here. Uh, let me turn back to uh, Randy Williams. Um, so this, the tell me how the project will proceed. You'll you'll go out, conduct interviews and such. Right. This will all end up at the American Folklife Center? What? It'll end up at Utah State University. Okay. Thanks for asking. That's a great thing. Um, but we are partners with them, and so obviously they'll know how to access it because, as Guha mentioned about some of their projects, this will be born digital. But the week's going to be pretty fantastic. The first week, we will be intense in our classrooms learning from production. Um, think about all the different things that we have to do to make sure we get um, good sound and photographs and then naming protocols. All those kinds of, um, you know, high nerd factor kinds of things, I like to say. But as well, you know, Chimo and others will talk about cultural nuances and what's appropriate and maybe not appropriate, you know, with community members. But all this wonderful effort that the, the students will have the opportunity to immerse themselves in, they'll get to have the opportunity to go out and do research and to visit with individuals and, and do a tape-recorded interview. And Lisa talked about... Um, or I should say a digital recorded interview. Lisa talked about the teams of three, and so each team will be um, with a different refugee community, and they will each be responsible to do different tasks. So some will be the interviewer, like you. Someone will be the recordist, like Bennett in the other room over there. Someone will be the photographer, mm-hmm. and, um, and every team member will be engaged in then doing some transcription work and then working on... Um, an exhibit, a digital exhibit. So at the very end, um, the students will have some really amazing products that they produce, and I mean by the end of the third week. Mm. We'll have a, an EAD guide prepared that will house the physical materials in USU Special Collections and Archives. We will have a robust digital archive of these interviews. People can, in you know, three and a half weeks, listen to the interviews and read them if they want, look at the images. And then the students will prepare and I have to say with Chimo's, you know, and some of our other students, Heidi Williams and, and our great team in the library and our team that we've been talking with here today and Maggie Cruzy as well, we will, the students will produce these Omeka 
digital exhibits that will help bring people into our collections. And that's there so people can interact. And if you're curious, you know, out there in the radio land, in a few weeks you can learn more about the Korean community. And maybe somebody will have, you know, had a thoughtful discussion and, and, and describe some of these foods or some of the um, cultural nuances that, you, you know, that we're all curious about. Mm-hmm. And that's something that we can be, I'm really proud of, I think, that we've documented. Right. We just have a couple minutes left. Uh, I want to maybe get a final word uh, from uh, Gua Shankar. What, uh, what would you say summing up? Um, summing up, I think, uh, you know, the, the uh, project like the Utah State Field School, like all of our other partnerships, uh, rests largely on the principles of sustainability. And sustainability works, I think, in a number of different ways. Um, first, uh, perhaps and foremost, is uh, trying to work with community, uh, cultural communities, to see how uh, folklorists and others can help them sustain cultural traditions, especially those that are under stress. Um, uh, sustainability also works to the extent that the American Folklife Center and the library are interested and very keenly aware of sustaining um, our professions, uh, whether it's libra- librarianship, uh, whether it's uh, archival. Uh Sounds like we might have might have lost uh, Gwen Shankar there. Uh, final word from Lisa Gabbard. What, how would you, what would you say summing up? Well, summing up, I would say if uh, listeners want to know more, we're going to be tweeting the field school, and so they can follow us at USU Folklore on Twitter. Okay. Randy? Well, and also we'd like to invite folks. Um, we're having a event on Thursday, the 29th, or excuse me, the 28th of May. At, we'll be at the Logan Library at 7 p.m. and the, um, I think, Bonneville Room, where our students will present their exhibits. And so we would love for people in the community to come and participate with us. But may I give a shout-out to the library? Oh, sure. The library did a, um, a great job in helping fund this, as well as the English department. And so um, That's right. it is something that Utah State feels right. strongly about. And, uh, Goshankar, we've got you back. Yes. <laughs> just yeah, just sure. about 30 I, seconds. Again, I mean, it's, uh, we're looking, really looking forward to being in Utah, Maggie Cruzy and myself, and uh, you know, on behalf of the uh, Library and the American Folklife Center, working with uh, wonderful colleagues at Utah State and uh, helping uh, move this project along uh, from its inception and uh, on, through, uh, on through time. Well, we'll uh, leave it there. We have had with us in studio Randy Williams with USU 5 Folklore Archives. Thanks for coming in. Thank you so much, Tom. And on the line, Lisa Gabbert, Associate Professor of English, Director of the Folklore Program at USU. Thank you. Thank you. Gua Shankar, a Folklife Specialist with the American Folklife Center Library of Congress. Thank you. Uh, thank, you're welcome, and thank you very much. And uh, Chimo, who is uh, with the uh, Karen uh, Refugee Community in uh, Cache Valley, USU student. Thanks so much for coming in. Thank you. It's great to meet you. And another plug for StoryCorps, uh, UPR and StoryCorps are teaming up in Vernal in July. So we'll have details for you and hope you'll join us there. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. This is Randy Watts bringing more to life. Will you be a caregiver? For the first time, adult couples have more parents than children. How do you prepare for this new role? Communication is key to success in any job. The role of a caretaker is no exception. Begin with your parents' wishes. Talk to them about personal goals, housing, legal, financial, and medical decisions. Some of these conversations may be easy. Some will be difficult. Start the conversation now to bring more to their lives. 
Support for Bringing More to Life on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our listeners and the Sunshine Terrace Foundation in Logan, advancing wellness, independence, dignity, and comfort. Information at sunshineterrace.com. Did you know that storytelling skills are linked to reading comprehension? In a recent USU study, children who learn to develop their own stories improve their comprehension and vocabulary. Did You Know That is made possible by the USU Emma Eccles Jones College of Education and Human Services. More at cehs.usu.edu. Beethoven wrote his Piano Concerto No. 1 when he was living in Vienna. We'll hear it from a concert in Vienna played by an orchestra that was founded to play music by Beethoven. Rudolf Buchbinder at the piano and conducting the Vienna Philharmonic on the next Performance Today from APM. Tuesday morning at 11 on Utah Public Radio. Congratulations to Dr. Anthony Peacock, head of Utah State University's College of Humanities and Social Science Political Science Department, for being named to the National Advisory Board of the Coalition of Freedom. As part of the coalition, Peacock will contribute to the initiative to make the United States Constitution more accessible and better understood and appreciated. UPR congratulates Dr. Anthony Peacock for being named to the National Advisory Board of the Coalition of Freedom. You know Texas Instruments best probably for making calculators. They make a good part of their profits though from car parts. The system would recognize that this is a caution sign, would recognize that there's two pedestrians in front of you, and then could automatically help the car stop and prevent an accident. I'm Kai Rizdal. Smart cars don't build themselves, you know. We'll tell you more next time on Marketplace from APM. Tuesday night at 7 on Utah Public Radio. Public radio attracts an audience that is focused on professional attainment. Do you have a product, service, or degree that can further their career growth? Let our listeners know by becoming a UPR program sponsor. For more information, call Terry Guy at 435-797-3215. KUSR HD1 Logan. KUSK HD1 Vernal, KUSL HD1 Richfield, KUST HD1 Moab, KCEU Price, and KUSU FM HD1 Logan.